This is a Federal News Network podcast. My next guest might have one of the coolest jobs in the federal government. He's head of the Moving Image section at the Library of Congress. Recently, the section posted a digitized version of something never seen before, a home movie of a famous rock concert from 1969. Here to tell us about his work and about that grainy movie, Mike Machan. Mr. Machan, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Very nice to be here. Thanks. First of all, tell us the bigger picture of what happens in the moving image section. I guess they don't call it movies anymore. An image kind of brings in digital and film and everything that was ever recorded with light, I guess. Right. So the Library of Congress is home to the largest collection of film and video in the world. We have about 1.7 million individual items, physical items in our collection and ever-growing collection of digital as well. So we have been collecting film here since the 1890s, and we still get it in through copyright and uh, gift and purchase today. So my section is responsible for acquiring the material, for describing it, doing any conservation rehousing we need. We have good storage for it, and we also establish the preservation priorities for that collection. It's a big job. And when you have motion picture film from a movie camera, from a emulsion, you know, light-sensitive film, do you generally, as a matter of course, digitize that since film eventually breaks down and dissolves? Yeah, these days we do digitize the film, but we were always founded and we still have the capability of preserving film on film. We are one of the few places that can still photochemically preserve motion pictures. So we still have the ability to create, for example, 35 millimeter prints from, you know, nitrate film originals. And there are still filmmakers working today that use motion picture film, correct? The traditional film? Oh, absolutely. Yes, there's still a, a handful uh, out there. We're a sort of film forever uh, kind of people, but we're not Luddites either. So we definitely have a tremendous number of digital workflows available to us in our facility. Yeah, it's kind of a cultural thing. I mean, it takes getting used to to look at a full budget motion picture. I don't go to the movie theater very much, but to see videotape. That's something that has been, quote, you know, not to make a pun, but ingrained on people to see the grain going by. And I right. guess someday we'll get used to not seeing it. You know, it is a little interesting sometimes to you go to a theater and you're watching typically a digital cinema package. And those things, they're very cleaned up. You don't see the grain in the film uh, anymore. And, you know, for people like me, sometimes that can be a little disconcerting. And what is the process by which the library decides this film should be preserved in perpetuity, this one maybe not so much? Excellent question. We really do strive to preserve all of it, frankly, particularly in, ter in terms of the video that we have in the collection. I do want to you know, make it clear. We have a lot of videotape in our collection as well. Uh, we have some ways of doing that in robots where we can push videotape through robots and do tremendous amounts of digitization, like 20,000 tapes a year on average film is going to be a, a little different we have a lot of reels of film in the collection and you're right we do have to make some decisions on what is going to be preserved 
we have good preservation storage. So the films that we have are stored in cold and dry conditions. So, you know, we're able to sort of slow down their deterioration until we can get to them. But a lot of times the decisions that we're making are going to be based on the physical condition of the material. So if the film has really started to deteriorate, we want to make sure that we can scan it as quickly as possible. But we also have a very robust loan program here. There's still a good number of theaters out there that are showing 35 millimeter film and we can still make 35 millimeter prints in addition to making digital cinema packages here. So, you know, there are films that we know that will be shown in theater. We also have a lot of our films available online through something called the National Screening Room, and we'll make sure that those films get sent up to the laboratory for scanning. We're speaking with Mike Mashan. He is the head of the Moving Image section at the Library of Congress. And do you work with the National Archives? Because they have some film, like I think they have the Zabruder film, for example, and it has to be also preserved in that same manner. So how does that interaction happen? Oh, we have a, a lot of interaction with other federal agencies and National Archives being the primary one. We're also very much involved in initiatives with the National Archives in terms of setting standards for digitization. There's a federal group that works on that. People will frequently uh, ask me what's the difference uh, between our collection and the National Archives. National Archives is responsible for films that were produced by the government. And we have a lot of those in our collection, but we collect even more broadly than that. It's the reason why you're going to find a lot of Hollywood films, home movies, uh, educational films uh, in our collection. But we work really closely with the National Archives. Now, this recent film that came to light was an amateur shot film of a famous concert or a concert at which a famous and kind of unfortunate event happened. Uh, tell us about that, the Altamont concert there. The Rolling Stones are in there and some other famous artists of the day. Uh, what's the story behind that film? And who shot it and how did it come into the Library of Congress? Well, in some ways, the story of, of finding that film is as interesting as the film, uh, at least from the archival perspective. So one of my colleagues, a uh, technician named John Snelson, is going through a, a collection of film processing it that we received from a man named Rick Pralinger many years ago. Rick collected a lot of films, very well known in the archival field, and it's a massive collection of, you know, well over 150,000 reels of film. So John is just sort of going through the Pralinger collection. And he just called my attention. Every once in a while, he he would come across something. He would just call my attention to it. And he said, I got this film. It, you know, title of it is Stones in the Park. And um, that could he, be anything. Yeah, it really kind of could. Well, I mean, for me, what it triggered was I knew that the Rolling Stones had actually made a film of a concert they did in Hyde Park in July of 1969 not long after the guitarist Brian Jones had died. So that had been filmed and released as Stones in the Park. But, you know, what John had turned up was an 8-millimeter film. Now, 8 millimeters is a home movie format. So, you know, I wasn't really sure what it was. And I just went ahead and sent it up to the laboratory. I kind of figured, okay, we're going to want to know what this thing is anyhow. So I put in a digitization order. It goes up to the laboratory. And a few days later, uh, I get a call from the lab. And the guys up there were like, you, Mike, you might want to come see this. So I run upstairs and you know, they're playing the file for me. And it's Altamont. 
The Altamont Free Concert was December 6, uh, 1969. Very famous uh, concert uh, memorialized in the film Gimme Shelter. But, you know, this was clearly home movie footage shot by somebody right up by the stage. It's silent. There's no sound with this. But, you know, you see some acts who aren't in Gimme Shelter. You've got Santana and the Flying Burrito Brothers with Graham Parsons and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young are in it in the home movie, in addition to footage of the Stones in their evening performance. And that and, concert you know, became famous. It was in California at a racetrack, and that was where they hired the Hells Angels as bodyguards, and a murder occurred in the audience. Yeah, and there's there's nothing – I mean, you can see the kind of mayhem that's breaking out as, you know, Hell's Angels are roaming the stage. But, yeah, a concert goer, uh, Meredith Hunter, was killed by Hell's Angel during the Stones set. Uh, you don't see anything like that in this home movie. But, you, you know, you asked, do we know who the camera – person is we do not uh, we would very much like to find out who shot this because i will say the film that rick pralinger had acquired was from a company called uh, palmer films which was a laboratory in san francisco that went out of business and when palmer films went out of business rick came in scooped up all their films added it to his collection and then they came to us so palmer is no longer extant this film was abandoned at Palmer. And so we consider it to be an orphan work. We just simply, we don't know who owns it. Well, now it's out for the public to see and maybe someone will come forward. Hey, I was there. I shot that with my du jour camera or my bolio. I'd love it. And just while we have you, what is your background? Do you come to this as a film content artistic person or as a technical preservation format type of guy? Or how do you come to this job? I'm a subject matter expert. I always defer to the technical people on this. My professional background actually started as an immunologist, but I really, really love movies and TV. So I went back to school and got a PhD uh, in radio, television, film. And I started at the library 24 years ago as the moving image curator. So I am very much more on the subject matter uh, side than anything else. Well, I've got my old home movies in 8mm and later in Super 8. If you'd like to have them, they're welcome to go into the library. But I have a feeling it probably doesn't quite meet the threshold. Oh, no, you would be wrong about that, Tom. We actually very much like home movies around here. We have a lot a lot of home movies in our collection and you know some of them actually date back to the early 1900s so it's a pretty remarkable collection and look not all of them are going to be altamont but look we have home movies from people who took their vacations in germany in the mid 1930s wow you know, it's really fascinating stuff but you know yes we also have my home movies as well. So. All right. Well, if you want to see a three-year-old Tom Temin sneezing silently on the beach because hey. I was allergic to everything in Atlantic <laughs> City, it's available. <laughs> Fantastic. Mike Machan is head of the Moving Image section at the Library of Congress. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, I really enjoyed it, Tom. Thanks a lot. We'll post this interview along with a link to a blog about the Altamont concert film at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner 
1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. TCM's award-winning podcast, The Plot Thickens, is back. This time with legendary actress Pam Greer the fearless action hero who beat down the bad guys on screen, yet her toughest battles began the moment the cameras stopped rolling. Join us for our new season of Turner Classic Movies podcast, The Plot Thickens, Here Comes Pam, hosted by TCM's Ben Mankowitz. Available now anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit tcm.com slash podcast to learn more.